Thank you. Chairman Bethel, President O'Donnell, Bishop Conley, faculty, esteemed graduates, dear brothers and sisters in our Lord. I'm deeply honored to be here, to be able to join with you in celebrating the achievements of these young men and women, and looking forward in hope to all that they will accomplish for God and country in the future. Now, I recognize that it is the first and highest obligation of a commencement speaker to remain within his allotted time. <laughs> so I am going to keep an eye on things by having my watch here in front. By the way, this, uh, this watch is of enormous sentimental value to me. This is the watch that my dear, beloved, late grandfather on his deathbed sold me. So no matter what happens with cell phones and all that, I know kids don't wear watches, they have cell phones. I'm gonna keep this watch, this matters to me. <laughs> Dear friends, faith is the way we realize a profoundly important aspect of our well-being and fulfillment as human beings, the good of living in friendship and harmony with God. But faith plays another role as well. It guides and structures our pursuit of all of the other aspects of human well-being and fulfillment that are the objects of our rational choosing. In the life of faith, our friendship with God pertains not only to what we ordinarily regard as religious questions and the religious dimensions of our lives, going to Mass on Sunday, saying our evening prayers, and so forth. It pertains to the whole of life, including those aspects of our lives that we ordinarily regard as secular. Now, this is by no means to deny that there are secular as well as religious dimensions of life. Uh, we Catholics are not afraid of the word uh, secular. We realize that there are secular aspects of life. We reject secularism, the idea that there is nothing beyond the secular and material. But we understand that even the life of a hermit monk or a contemplative nun will have secular dimensions. Nor am I saying or suggesting that friendship with God is the only true human good, or that it renders the other goods insignificant or reduces them to the status of mere means to friendship with God, considered as the ultimate goal of all upright human choosing. In fact, the human good is variegated. There are many distinct and fundamentally different aspects of human well-being and fulfillment, many basic constitutive human goods, human goods that are constitutive in the sense that they constitute us as flourishing human beings. If one considers, for example, the good of friendship or the good of knowledge or the good of religion, each is an aspect of human well-being and as such provides a reason for acting whose intelligibility is a reason, doesn't depend on any further or deeper reason to which it is subordinate or serves merely as a means. But the benefit of having or being a friend, for example, is different in kind from the benefit of gaining knowledge or enhancing one's critical intellectual faculties or critical abilities in skillful performances such as chess or ballet or football, or the benefit of bringing oneself more fully into harmony with God, a very great and profound benefit that is. These are distinct human goods and are not reducible to each other or to some common factor. By predicating goodness of them, if I can impose on the philosophical training that I know you've all had, 
By predicating goodness of them, we do not suggest that they share a substantive content, a common substantive content that is merely expressed or manifested in different ways. Rather, we predicate goodness of them precisely because each, in its own way, fulfills persons, you and me and others, in a certain distinct dimension of our lives, and therefore each is capable of motivating us to act by appealing to what Aristotle called, as you know, our practical intellect, that is, our rational grasp of what is in fact humanly fulfilling. Each provides a more than merely instrumental reason for acting. Well, then the question arises, what then distinguishes morally upright from immoral choosing, given the variegated nature of the human good? Well, morality in its most fundamental sense is a matter of rectitude and willing. Its criterion, I believe, is conformity of our choices, our acts of will, with the integral directiveness of the various basic forms of human good. What is consistent with a wholehearted love of the human good integrally conceived. Norms of morality, whether they are of the more general sort, such as the golden rule that Christ taught us of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, or what we sometimes call the Pauline principle, the principle that one must never do what is in itself evil, even for the sake of good consequences that it might bring, or the more specific norms that forbid committing murder or rape or theft. These are entailments or specifications of the most fundamental moral principle, namely that one should choose in a way that's fully compatible with a will toward the integral human good. One ought to line up one's will in a way that's favorable and positive toward human, human well-being and fulfillment, toward human flourishing in all of its dimensions. But if this account of the foundations of moral judgment and the, and the criterion or when specified criteria of morally upright choosing is correct, then many of our choices are not between morally right and morally wrong options, but rather are between or among morally legitimate options. Most of the choices that we make going through our days are not choices between right and wrong. They're choices between or among perfectly legitimate from a moral point of view, options, but where a choice must be made because we can't do everything. We certainly can't do everything at the same time. Now, the application of moral norms will sometimes exclude certain options, but it will often leave two or more options morally available. Shall I go to graduate school in philosophy or shall I go to law school? I guess thinking of myself, I did both. But I couldn't do them at the same time. And it certainly meant I couldn't go to medical school as well, although I th fear my poor father was thinking that I might do that next. <laughs> now, while plainly there are life plans and lifestyles and forms of conduct that are ruled out by moral norms, the variegated nature of the human good makes it the case that there are many mutually exclusive but morally upright possible plans of life and ways of living. Norms of morality certainly require us to lead lives of integrity and coherence, lives that make use of and to the extent possible uh, enable us to give effect to the talents we enjoy. But very different lives can fully embody integrity and coherence. A man could, with integrity, lead a coherent life in which he marries and has children, works for an insurance company, coaches a little league team, collects stamps, and enjoys watching Monday Night Football and Humphrey Bogart movies. 
Another man could equally with integrity lead a coherent life as a parish priest who loves Italian operas, serves as the vocations director for his diocese, turns on the television set only to watch the evening news broadcast, Fox I hope, and teaches Latin as an adjunct professor at a nearby university. Those are two very different lives, but equally can be led with coherence and integrity. So what does one do? How does one decide when faced with a range of good but incompatible possibilities? How does one go about the business of structuring one's life when many options are open, all of which offer opportunities to use and develop one's God-given talents and dedicate oneself to things one cares about. This is the position so many of you are in right now. Some of you maybe have got it all planned out, but I suspect that more than a few of you see different paths in front of you that are good, not bad. You can't rule them out by reference to moral norms. Gosh, now what do I do? Now, persons face these questions whether or not they are men and women of faith. If I were before a secular group, uh, perhaps in the pejorative sense, uh, a group of people who didn't believe in God but wanted to do the right thing, they'd be facing the same question. Those who do not believe in God or for whom belief in God is merely notional, not practically significant in their lives, will consider when facing those options that they are simply on their own. Some people of goodwill make the mistake of supposing that utilitarianism or some other form of consequentialism is coherent and workable and can provide a rational way of solving the problem. Well, what will I do? Mm, I want to be a moral person. I'll do the thing that overall and in the long run promises to produce the net best proportion of benefit to harm. I'll pursue the greatest good of the greatest number. But there is no such thing. Utilitarianism trades on a myth. It's a kind of nice sounding myth. Who wouldn't want to do the thing that provides or produces the greatest good for the greatest number? You want to do the least good for the smallest number? No. But it's a myth. There is no such thing. The nature of the human good as variegated renders such a concept utterly incoherent. There are many things wrong with utilitarianism, but chief among them is that they necessarily presuppose that the various aspects of our well-being and fulfillment, the basic goods of our human nature, are commensurable in ways that make moral judgment essentially a matter of technical calculation. That's what the utilitarian approach comes down to, thinking you can solve a problem, a moral problem, a what-should-I-do problem with a kind of technical calculation. But this is to presuppose what is false. The irreducibility of the basic aspects of human well-being to one another or to some common factor dooms every effort to accomplish the commensuration of human goods that is required if utilitarian calculation is to be workable as a method of ethical decision-making. And so some others who are secularists who understand that there's a problem with utilitarianism, we can't do business that way, will simply ask themselves, what would make me happiest? Now, this isn't a kind of a hedonistic approach in some pejorative sense. They're not saying, gosh, I'll do whatever would make me happy, even if it means robbing banks and cheating people. They want to do the right thing. But since they're stuck with options that are legitimate, they say to themselves, I know how to think it through. Let me make a prediction about which plan, which course will make me happiest. 
but that one is doomed too. There is no such thing as an already existing future that can be predicted in that way. A Christian or other believer will not regard himself as on his own in making important decisions about plans of living and ways of life, even where moral reflection does not reduce the possibilities to a single uniquely correct option. A Christian will suppose that God has a plan for him and that his task is to cooperate with God in discerning and living out that plan. We who are Catholic Christians have a name for this plan, and you know the name very well. We call it a vocation. And we believe that every person has one. God's plan for each of us, we believe, has to do with the whole of our lives and not just with its most obviously religious aspects. Any individual's vocation may include, as I believe mine includes, significant secular dimensions as well as specifically religious ones. Now, when I was a boy uh, growing up, up just across the border over in, in West Virginia, these hills remind me very much of where I grew up. When I was a boy, it was common, though incorrect, for Catholics to reserve the word vocation to the callings of priests and nuns, those who would dedicate their lives to explicitly religious purposes. Some of you are old enough to uh, remember me, uh, remember a time uh, uh, when that was true. Professor Marshner, I know that you're uh, old enough to remember that. In those days, one might have heard a young man or woman say, I'm trying to discern whether I have a vocation. Well, we should all be trying to discern whether we have a vocation, even if we don't believe that is a vocation to the priesthood or religious life. Now, sometimes this was connected with the error of clericalism, which in turn was often rooted in the belief that religion is not only a, distinctive, uh, a distinctively architectonic good, but the ultimate and overriding good that reduces the others to essentially subordinate and instrumental status. In any event, the Catholic Church teaches that God has a plan, a calling, a vocation for each of us and not just for those of us called to the priesthood and religious life. And prayer and other spiritual disciplines, together with our rational powers of inquiry, reflection, understanding, and judgment, are the means available to each of us as gifts from God to discern what our Lord Jesus is calling us to do. But there's more. For there's a sense in which, for a Christian, faith is truly at the center of one's life. In situations of significant choosing, faith helps one to understand not only which options are morally available, in the sense that there's nothing morally wrong with choosing them, but also which from among the morally available possibilities really does make the highest and best uses from God's point of view of the talents he has given us. Talents that we will as believers view as imposing responsibilities more than as providing means of achievement, satisfaction, status, and recognition. You understand that as a believer. People who aren't believers understand that they have talents. And often they see these talents as just good luck that gives them opportunities for achievement and satisfaction and status and recognition. And talents do give you that. But from the vantage point of faith, you as Christians understand that those talents more fundamentally come 
with responsibilities. They impose responsibilities even more than they give you opportunities for status and achievement and recognition. Moreover, faith standing at the very center of one's life enables one to bring one's choices into a more coherent whole. In this, faith, in this sense, faith plays an integrating as well as an architectonic role. By centering one's life, our faith helps us to live lives that hang together. And this is humanly valuable, not merely instrumentally, but also intrinsically. For integrity, and I'm here using the term broadly in the sense of self-integration and not just in the moral sense, integrity is itself an irreducible aspect of our fulfillment, our flourishing as human beings. In focusing on the uh, architectonic and integrating role of faith, I've been discussing situations in which important choices must be made between morally legitimate options. But this shouldn't be taken as a denial that faith has an important role to play in helping the believer to choose uprightly in cases where the options are between right and wrong. In line with the historic teaching of the church, I believe that we can identify moral norms and apply them to concrete cases by rational inquiry, understanding, and judgment, even apart from God's special revelation. Following St. Thomas Aquinas, I believe that God directs us to our proper ends in part by giving us a share in the divine power of reason, logos, by which we can understand moral truth. To believe this is to believe in natural law, what St. Paul described as the law written on the hearts even of the Gentiles who did not know the law of Moses. And this law, St. Paul affirmed, because it can be naturally known, is sufficient for moral accountability. But the Christian believer in natural law will also believe that God's revelation pertains to morality and that the norms God reveals, especially in the Decalogue, reinforce and illuminate what can be known by reason and make the norms of morality in the terms of their application clearer and give us a profound sense of their ultimate and indeed cosmic significance. So faith as I, as a Christian, understand it, illuminates and enriches our understanding of what can be known by unaided reason. But faith does also enable us to see the larger and lasting significance of our choices. It helps us to understand the good and upright actions by which we realize human goods as a kind of participation in Christ's own work of building up God's kingdom. The Second Vatican Council has a beautiful statement about the ultimate significance of our morally good choices. It's in the document that we know as Gaudium et Spes. And here's what the council says. And th these words, I think, are really worth our attention and reflection. Think about this. The council teaches us that after we have obeyed the Lord and in his spirit nurtured on earth the values of human dignity, brotherhood, and freedom, and indeed all the good fruits of our nature and enterprise, we will find them again burnished and freed from stain, and transfigured when Christ hands over to the Father a kingdom eternal and universal, a kingdom of truth and life, of holiness and grace, of justice, love, and peace. On this earth, that kingdom is already present in mystery. When the Lord returns, it will be brought into full flower." Unquote. So the goods of our own lives here on earth are not passing things. They're not lost. They are themselves used by God, used by Christ in building up the kingdom 
that will himself, he himself will turn over to the Father. A kingdom already present, here and now, the council clearly teaches, in mystery. But when the Lord returns, we will find in its full flower. And then, of course, there is the biblical call to perfection, which for the Christian entails the willingness to follow the example of Christ himself in self-sacrificial love. Indeed, it is only through love and only through faith that one could possibly grasp and only by a most profound grace possibly live up to Jesus' command that we love. Love, mind you. Not only those who are kind to us, or at least do us no harm, but even our enemies, those who would destroy us. I mean, is this some kind of religion or what? Teaching something as unnatural as that we should love not only our friends, not only our neighbors, but our enemies. Boy, there's a way to win a lot of converts, isn't it? For an evangelical religion, a missionary religion. That's like saying, oh yeah, you ought to join this group. You know what this group teaches? You should take up your cross and follow me to the crucifixion. That'll win a lot of people over. I sometimes think that the real evidence for the truth of the Christian faith is the impossibility of its demands and the impossibility of its teachings. The stringency of this call to all of us to perfection is nowhere presented more clearly or forcefully than in the gospel story of the rich young man who approached Jesus, who asked, Lord, what need I do? In fact, he says, good master, what need I do to gain eternal life? Do you remember the story? He's a rich young man. Sometimes some translations call him a rich young ruler. And he, uh, I, I picture him coming to Jesus, and he's dressed in resplendent clothing. He looks a bit like uh, President O'Donnell there, <laughs> even with a Beretta or Bishop Conley. And he's got a train of people following him, servants and camels and dromedaries, and it's a magnificent scene. Good master, he asks Jesus, because he's heard about this holy man, he's heard about this, this preacher, this great rabbi. Good master, what do I need to do to gain eternal life. Jesus begins very interestingly the response, asks him a question, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then Jesus goes on. Now what do you, what do you suppose that's all about? Why does Jesus start by asking him a question, not giving him a chance to answer, and then making the point that only God is good? Well, I've got a theory about that. Bishop Conley, if I wander into heresy here, don't listen. I have a theory, and the theory is that St. Mark is telling us that Jesus understands that God has put into the mouth of the rich young ruler a profound truth. That is the truth that Jesus is God. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he goes on. So Jesus is signaling that the rich young man, perhaps only, only dimly even perceiving it himself, has already captured a truth. It's already stated a truth. That this is not just some itinerant rabbi and holy man preacher. That, that the divine is present here in him. Then you recall what Jesus says next. He says to the rich young man, you know the commandments. You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now think your way into the rich young man's position here. He must have been absolutely elated. 
This is the best news he could have ever gotten his entire life because he is able to look the Son of God in the face and in the very next sentence say to him, boy, do I wish I could say this, say to him, Master, I have followed these commandments from my youth. He must have felt, got it. Jesus, I asked Jesus, what do I need to do to earn eternal life? He says, obey the commandments. I've been doing it. This is a good man. We have no reason to think he's lying here, right? I mean, he's been doing it. But what happens next? St. Mark tells us, and I quote, at this, Jesus looked at him with love. With love, mind you. Now let's pause here. Let me interrupt the narrative. Let's pause here to feel the force of this point. Jesus is about to deliver the toughest teaching of all, a teaching so profoundly difficult and demanding that even this remarkably pious and upright young man who has kept all the commandments from his youth is not going to be able to take it or accept it. But it's a teaching that Jesus delivers. Why? St. Mark tells us, precisely because of his love for the young man. Jesus looked at him with love. He's delivering this teaching because of his desire for the welfare of the young man. He wants the young man to experience the blessing of not merely being good, but being perfect. And so Jesus looked at him with love and said, there is one thing more you must do. Go and sell what you have and give to the poor. Then come and follow me. But upon hearing this, St. Mark says, the young man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. And so it is that the vocation of every Christian, you and me, you graduates, includes a demand that, humanly speaking, is impossible. It is a mistake to suppose that this story is directed only at those who have material wealth. This is not a story for the upper half percent or even the upper five percent in the income scale. This is a story for every single reader of the scripture. It is certainly a story for every Christian. The call of Christ in the life of faith, as this story makes so clear, confronts and grasps us, if I may borrow the words of the late Bernard Lonergan, as a dynamic vector, an undertow, a fateful call to dreaded holiness, unquote. Dreaded holiness. The call is always a demand of self-sacrificial love for the sake of the gospel. But we must not suppose that it will always or even often be about material riches. I assure you, it will not be. That was what the case of the rich young man was. But for most of us, it's not about money. All of us, every single one, rich or poor, has riches in the sense of things we desire and cherish and don't want to give up or place at risk. And it will be riches of some sort 
that we will be asked by Jesus himself to sacrifice or place at risk. Perhaps Christ is calling you or me to take a stand right now, perhaps even to dedicate our lives to a cause that is unpopular in influential and elite sectors of our culture. A stand such as the defense of marriage in which Bishop Connolly is such a hero that might subject us to abuse from those who hold allegedly enlightened opinions or might leave us stigmatized or marginalized, and who wants that? Perhaps Christ is looking at you or me with love and asking us to put in jeopardy our reputations or prospects for career advancement because we're known to believe things and uphold things and promote things that those with power and wealth and influence reject. The sanctity of human life, the dignity of marriage, the conjugal union of husband and wife, religious liberty and the rights of conscience, the principles at the foundation of our civilization and polity that are so much at risk today under such ferocious assault from the most powerful, principles that many of you joined me in affirming in the Manhattan Declaration. This might be what Christ is calling us to do at great risk to ourselves. However that may be, each of us, if we are to be faithful to the gospel, must pray and reflect on what humanly impossible demand Jesus Christ is making on us and ask him for the divine assistance, in, the, in a word, the grace, to accept it and meet it. The all-too-real temptation for each of us, me as well as you, especially those of us who can say with the rich young man that we have been faithful to the commandments. The great temptation is that we will turn away sad for all of us, even the materially poor, have many possessions. I say to you graduates today, may you never yield to that temptation. It's my fervent prayer for you that with God's help, each of you may have the strength and the courage, the hope and the faith, and above all, the soul-ennobling, world-transforming, passionately burning love that will enable you to go and sell what you have and follow Christ. Thank you. <laughs>